All right. Well, hey, my friends, and thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Real Live Talk. Really, really appreciate you guys for just taking a moment to be here and to check out today's conversation. I am really, really pumped to uh, welcome really a brand new friend of mine, somebody that I just connected with uh, pretty recently within the past, I'd say, two months, maybe even less than that. I really felt like just from our initial conversation that the Lord was highlighting something special about our relationship and friendship and uh, brotherhood. And uh, I'm just really, really excited to share this interview and this conversation with you all. And I will tell you what we're going to talk about. Well, I'll, I'll go ahead and just mention it. We are we do plan on uh, spending time in this conversation talking about discipleship the process of discipleship, um, the mandate to disciple nations, and uh, loving and serving the people of God well, and what that looks like in the context of discipleship and being a disciple of Jesus and making disciples. So that's the plan, um, but we'll see, because these conversations don't always go the direction that I have in mind that they're going to go. So anyway, but appreciate you guys for being here. Let me go ahead and bring up my uh, guest up on the screen here. Jonathan Gibson is joining us from the great state of Texas, where uh, I'm yeah. actually moving to in about 10 days. And so, uh, Jonathan, welcome, man. How are you today? I am fantastic now that we've gotten technology to cooperate. It's not always the thing that happens, uh, but it happens. So we're able to have this, this Jesus talk. I love it. Thanks for having me. Well, man, thank you for being here. It's really an honor to chat with you this way uh, publicly. And I appreciate you. Your commitment to excellence is really just outstanding. The way that you powered through and <laughs> made sure that the audio and the video and everything was working properly. And so thank you for, uh, for doing all that. You know, I've done it for a long time, so uh, it's just more of the same. You just you you learn to embrace solving problems, or you don't. Uh, and twenty five years of this, I've learned to embrace solving problems. So yeah, it's no big deal. I'll just sleep it off tonight. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's beautiful, man. Well, uh, again, I mentioned this at the top, but you and I connected recently, and it was one of those things where I I reached out to you as I do often, as I'm you know kind of. Yeah, I don't know if there, I think there might have been a couple of mutual connections or something like that. And I'm always looking to yeah. build connection and uh, looking for podcast guests and stuff like that. But quickly realized from chatting with you a little bit that this was um, a bigger thing than just having you as a guest on a podcast and that there was a real uh, relationship, I believe, that um, we're in the process of of forming. And um, I just appreciate you, man, as part of our uh, greater Jesus family. And I appreciate yeah. your friendship. And I'm excited to get into this conversation and to hear about um, your ministry and how you all as a family do ministry together. And then we'll get into some maybe specifics with uh, the discipleship conversation. But um, if you would at the top here, just um, share a little bit about um, who you are and what you guys do. Yeah. Uh, well, Duke, thanks again for having us. I'm Jonathan. If it's not on the screen, it should be. Uh, you know, I, I would say that that I'm a person who grew up um, in less than savory uh, circumstances. You know, coming up, uh, we were very poor. We didn't have much. And and for many people, I think that there there is a power that comes with poverty that allows us to really only have Jesus as a plan A instead of breaking, uh, leaning on other things when he's all you have, you're kind of starting at the point and then you have to work your way out of poverty only to realize that he's all you really ever had. And so 
you know, that's kind of where my, my story starts later. Um, you know, my wife and my son, the Lord's kind of taken us uh, over the last, you know, 15 years, me and my wife and my son's 12 now. And so we've, uh, we've had wonderful adventures. Uh, and I don't know how to tee that up without just going through this crazy long story. So we, uh, we pastored a church in Kentucky for a few years, and then the Lord sent uh, just a series of encounters to send us to the state of Florida. And then after we were in Florida for uh, six years, we got 47 prophetic words in the last 30 days that we lived in Florida, sending us to Texas for the adventure that we're on. And now we have a ministry called The Lion Company, which is even more strange than the 47 prophetic words. I mean, what what is it? And you and I talked a little bit about this in our first conversation, but I mean, what does that look like? Where were these 47 prophetic words coming from? Was it just people randomly coming up to you at church? On the, Was it all kinds of stuff? Like, what, what was... How does that even, 47 prophetic words in 30 days is a lot. Yeah, I'm a really practical person. Uh, my family, you know, we we are used a lot in prophetic training and um, learning to hear the Lord in practical ways. Um, I think for a long time, the church has been so hungry to hear the voice of the Lord that when we started hearing the voice of the Lord, we almost turned it into um, a display of look at my gift. Uh, rather than wow. it being family or relational. And so, you know, for a long time, um, it wasn't this attractive thing. So when these 47 people came up, most of them were strangers. Uh, and they didn't really know how to relationally say, hey, I feel this thing coming. How are you? Where are you in life? It was kind of like, this is what God says. And they would drop this word and they would walk away. Uh, so, let, let's just rewind maybe to, I don't know, maybe 2011, 12. Uh, you know, we're, we're making this move to Florida. We've now we've gotten into um, Vero Beach, Florida. And I'd had a dream when we lived in Kentucky, when we were pastoring there, that uh, there would be one day that a man would offer me to attend uh, a school planting conference uh, about planting uh, schools of supernatural ministry. And so mm -hmm. Five years later, a man walks up to me in Vero Beach, Florida, who I had befriended and ministered to his family. And so we were pretty close at this point. And he said, hey, I was praying last night and the Lord told me that I was supposed to take you to this conference in California for planting a school of supernatural ministry. And he said, I want you to pray. I know it's, it's you know, going to be hard on your schedule, but I feel like you're supposed to be there. And I said, yes. He was like, what do you mean? That was really really quick. And I said, well, I had a dream five years ago. Here it is in my journal. Uh, I'm supposed to go with you to this conference. And so I didn't know why at this point, you know, for me, my ceiling was planting a school of supernatural ministry. And so I didn't really have any comprehension of what it would look like to do uh, quote unquote more. I thought the idea of pouring into people and discipling them was like the thing that my heart burned for. I didn't know that it was going to scale, uh, you know, around the world. And so we go to this conference and we were there five days and I had 12 people come up to me and give me a prophetic word. It was so frustrating to my friend who brought me that he actually just started joking, saying, I'm here to chauffeur Jonathan to get his next prophetic word. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, he's really he's he's hilarious. So uh, 11 of those 12 prophetic words that came in those five days were nearly identical. And so at this point, my head is starting to kind of spin. Uh, it didn't take a, a lot of prophetic words to get us to move to Florida. It wouldn't take us a lot to move to Texas. And so 
I started asking the Lord, like, why, why 11? Well, then, you know, fast forward within the next probably just over three weeks, you know, we end up at 47. We would be at a grocery store and get a prophetic word from a stranger. We would be in a church setting. We drove all the way to Pennsylvania to lead worship at a conference. And while I'm there about to take the platform, I am getting talked to by the elders of another church of people that I don't know. And they're all giving me the same prophetic word separately that I'd gotten from California. And then uh, we were at a conference with a well-known prophetic voice in uh, Orlando. And he calls my son out of the crowd and ends up giving him a prophetic word. And it's the same prophetic word that we got in California. And then the next day, uh, I can share some details of this part of the story. The next day after this conference in Orlando, we were at the Send in 2019. Um, and at this point, if you guys don't know that story, uh, there's a moment at the Send with Lou Engel uh, and many other voices from around the world where everybody starts spontaneously singing, Let It Rain. And there are no clouds in the sky. We've been out 14 hours in the burning heat, praying for rain. And the clouds that aren't there mysteriously break. And we start getting rained on. And during this time, it was probably 20 to 30 minutes, people were getting healed miraculously while it was raining. And a woman taps me on the shoulder uh, in the middle of this moment. Like it was this wild, radical, holy moment. And I don't want to be bothered. Again, I'm practical. I'm having this moment with Jesus, and I don't want anybody to tap me on the shoulder. And she taps me on the shoulder, and, and it's an elderly woman. And she looks at me, and at this point, I've gotten 33 prophetic words, roughly. And she says, you've gotten 33 prophetic words, haven't you? And I just start weeping. I'm like, oh, no. Like, here's another one. Wow. Uh, and she tells me what the 33 prophetic words are. And then she tells me where the people missed in their 33 prophetic words. Like this lady is scary accurate. And, and accuracy for me isn't the most important thing in prophecy. It's obedience to the Lord wow. and doing what he says to do. However, this lady is next level accurate. And then she tells me a few more things that we're going to do to go around the world. And I said, ma'am, I have to ask, who are you? And she said, have you heard of Catherine Kuhlman? And I said, yes. And she said, I'm one of her last living interns that went with her around the world. And I was wow. like, oh, my gosh, like we're in 60,000 people. And this lady is calling me out, telling me all these prophetic words. So needless wow. to say, we were ready to move by the time, you know, we got to four or five prophetic words and, and yeah, ready to be obedient. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like we, I have so many friends that go, that's just because you're hard headed. And, you know, you just, right. you know, you needed 47. I'm like, no, I really. I really didn't. We we moved from Kentucky to Florida on one dream. And so we're we're people that are really we, we celebrate the idea of rapid obedience uh to the Lord. You know, that's the one thing that I hope that I can leave with people when when I'm on the other side of the clouds, I hope that they would say of us that we loved well and that we were rapidly obedient to Jesus. So that's kind of how it happened. That's crazy, man. I was I actually just before our episode here, I recorded next week's episode because uh, it's going to be Christmas. We're going to be moving. I'm not going to have any cameras set up or anything like that. So I had to do yeah. it ahead of time. And that's what I was talking about was, uh, was obeying quickly. Um, so that's, that's pretty cool that you just, that you just went there. But yeah, I was curious about that. I mean, I was just wondering, cause I'm, I mean, I'm thinking you really don't need that 47th word. You probably no. even need the fit, the sixth, you know what I mean? 
And so yeah. did did God ever explain to you why he allowed you to receive 47 words? Do you have any kind of a sense as to why Do you think it was just kind of maybe God demonstrating something that he's going to be using you guys for in terms of, you know, showing his abundance? Like, I'm just trying to think like what that might be. Do yeah. you have any inkling as to why God uh, was so extravagant in, in terms of giving you those confirmations? Yeah. I mean, uh, and that's what I would say they were as confirmations. Cause after you get like what you believe the will of the Lord is, it's like everything else is just kind of confirming that, you know, you're, you're being obedient and that's a right thing to do. Uh, because we're prophetic, I leave no stone unturned when it comes to the meaning of everything to the point where even paying attention in my daily life, I'm, you know, looking at my life as if it were a story recorded in heaven, because it is all of our stories are recorded in heaven. And so, you know, I'm paying attention when God does just regular things that I would consider regular, uh, let alone 47 words that I'm looking for meaning in it. Because I don't, uh, I am a, a practical person. I don't spend a lot of time looking at numbers or paying a lot of attention, but I also know there's some biblical significance. And so when I looked at the number 47, uh, and I forget exactly how it relates to the circumstance, I was satisfied in the answer when I found it. Um, the number 47 relates to God establishing a thing and seeing that it's good. And so when God established the law and when God said, you know, he, he, he created the light and he saw that it was good, that number, when you look through uh, numerology and Hebraic language is God seeing that it was good once it was established. And so that 47 became really strange because even my salary had 47s in it when I moved to Texas and I uh, went to work for a local church there. I mean, everything went over and over and over was just constant 47 uh, kind of slapping us over the head. And I felt like the Lord was saying he's establishing us. And I think a part of it also has to do um, the pastor we went uh, to work for and became wonderful friends with actually, we're going to minister in January uh, back in Abilene, Texas, where we started. Uh, once we moved to Texas, he said, Jonathan, uh, I've got to ask, why did God give you 47 prophetic words? And I said, I don't know. And he said, I think I have some insight. I said, okay. Well, he knows what the 47 prophetic words are, and a part of those 47 prophetic words was that Abilene, Texas was going to be of sorts a gauntlet for us, very difficult. Mm -hmm. And he said, I think that God was letting you know, so that if you ever got to a point of doubt, because the road was going to be trying, that you could never doubt that this was the Lord, even in hardship. Mm -hmm. uh, and it turned out to be mostly true. You know, the last probably 18 months in Abilene was glorious. Uh, enough so that we were able to establish relationships over the time that we were there that uh, we count many of the people in Abilene and really the city of Abilene family to us. I, I ended on a weird note, but yes, the 47 uh, prophetic words, obviously, I think it was about God establishing us and, and reminding us in hardship to keep going. Oh man, that's so good. Yeah, that's so good. God, God is so good, man. He's so faithful. Like that's, that's so cool how just that you have that. I mean, what you just said there a second ago about being able to, I mean, that's 47 words that you can look back on <laughs> and one is enough really, but I mean, yeah. that's 47 words that you can look back on. You said, you know, when you're going through something that's trying or difficult, or maybe you're not seeing what you wanted to see or what you thought you would see, or it's not happening as quickly, or there's challenges coming up along the way or yeah. whatever, but being able to reflect back on the faithfulness and of God and on specifically on what God said, and to to stand on that in the midst of what you're going through. Um, I, I think that's that's something that we can again with 
with one word, with one thing that God said or God showed us. But I just I love the the just extravagant nature of God in this story that you're telling that he was just he just wanted to establish you. He wanted to make it clear. He wanted to make it plain. And he and he just reminded you over and over and over and over and over again. It's it's really, really cool. It, it is. And I think, you know, there were there were so many takeaways. We lay in bed at night, even today, after, you know, all of the things that God was setting us up for, you know, that mm-hmm. that continued. Uh, and, and even just a couple of nights ago, we're laying in bed saying, is this real life and laughing and crying? Because, again, we're really practical people. We're, we're from a small town in Kentucky that, you know, these types of things don't, quote unquote, happen to. Uh, you know, and, and I would like to think because of 25 years in ministry and, you know, a lifetime spent with loving Jesus that I would know his character well enough to know that, you know, we've been through greater hardships, honestly, than being in a town where there were challenges. And so I really feel like the 47 words really leaned more into the establishing. Uh, because for me, when when we endure trials, I look at the goodness of God. And I understand that because he's good, uh, he's not done working if I'm right in the middle of a challenge. There's something that's being built in me, and there's something that I'm being used likely to build for the kingdom in the process. Um, we're people that celebrate the journey as opposed to the finish line. Um, so it, it was strange to get that many prophetic words, but now looking back, I really do feel like this establishing and this launching, you know, part of the, the those prophetic words also said that we would be launched out of Abilene, uh, and that's the next chapter of the story. And I don't want to jump wow. ahead. I want you to, to give me some feedback on that. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's great, man. I, uh, yeah, it's, it's so cool that, you know, whether, whether the, the journey, I love that you said that you celebrate the journey and not, not just the finish line, because yeah. it's in that journey. It's in that process where we grow, where we get to know him more, where we get more of him. And I just think that so often we can harden our hearts in the, along the journey because we're not seeing what we want to see or it's not working out or there's more challenges than we expected or whatever and we can make the mistake of hardening our hearts and thinking that somehow god is holding back from us or that he's withholding blessing from us because it doesn't look like we thought it was going to look and so it's really important what you're saying because it's like this if if it's easy if it's hard if it's frustrating, if it's challenging, if it all falls apart or if it all works perfectly, if we keep our heart sensitive before the Lord in the process of it all, we get more of him. Like it doesn't yeah. matter like if what I'm going through is is very very challenging, if I keep my heart sensitive before the Lord, I'm getting more of him in the process. And this actually reminds me because um I didn't read it but there's, you know, part of the 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 description of the lion company um, on your website, it actually says, we believe unity begins and ends with common vision and goals. The vision and goal being Jesus himself. And that's beautiful because if we keep Jesus himself as the goal and as the vision for our lives, and yeah, there's things he's called us to do. There's things he's called us to build. There's relationships he's called us to build. There's all of these different aspects of walking with him where he speaks and we obey and, and all of that. And it's beautiful. But the supreme goal and the vision of all of it is Jesus. It's like what Paul says in Philippians. 
Um, you know, all these other things that I thought were gain, I've counted loss compared with the excellence of what knowing you. And and if that's the goal, if that's the supreme focus, then I, I mean, in the process, again, whether it's easy, hard, difficult, challenging, it's up and down, we're getting more of him. That's right. Throughout the journey. And, yeah. And I would say simply Jesus plus anything. Like if you could just imagine, for those of you watching or listening, if you could imagine like a math equation, Jesus plus X equals zero. Because anytime we add to Christ, we're actually diminishing from who he is. If he's the one that's worthy to open the scroll, to break the seal, he's the only one worthy. Then anything that we're adding to Jesus is actually diminishing the value of his personhood. And so for us, we've just learned that like a lot of these things are radical and miraculous. But 20 years ago, you know, I would have cut off a foot for the opportunities that God has now given to us. And, and recently I was in a conference in, in a special place in the conference. And, and there was this moment when the crowd was, you know, erupting and all this noise was happening. and This worship was going up to God. And I sat in my seat and I wept. <clears throat> And I was like, God, why, why am I so emotional in this moment? Because I'm thinking it's, it's about the presence and it's about all these wonderful things. And he said, Jonathan, 20 years ago, you know, you would have done anything to be in the place that you're in now. And now because it doesn't matter because I'm more important, I'll give it to you because I know that you won't be crushed by the blessing. Come on. I'll drink to that. <laughs> yeah, me too, Livia. What is that you're drinking, by the way? That's a well funky looking green... It's it's some kind of healthy powder. I don't really know what it is. It tastes like a sour apple, though, so it's not bad. Um, hopefully, I'll I'll stay aware and awake. It's supposed to help me mentally focus. I didn't sleep great last night when I messaged you this morning. I was like, man, I'm I'm dragging, and coffee wasn't working. So yeah, we're gonna figure it out. Oh man, what you just said, what you just said is so good, man. God's not trying to crush us <laughs> with his blessing. And we right. look at, again, man, we look at it so wrong. So look at it so wrong. And we could be in that place. I've been in that place so many times where I'm sitting there thinking, well, God, where are you? Why are you right. not pouring out the way that you said you were going to? Why, you know? And it's because you matter more. Like you matter more to God even than the assignment. You matter right. more to God even than, you know, the blessing that's going to come out of it. And God's not willing to sacrifice you on the altar of your own promotion because ultimately it's not going to, first of all, it's probably not going to last. And second of all, if it crushes you in the process, God's not after that. God's after everything that God does, everything that God does. I believe he wants to do it in relationship with his people. And so anything that God gives me, that's going to cause me to focus more on myself or more on my, you know, gifting or my whatever. That's and it's right. going to cause me to stray from him or to go far from him in my heart. I mean, it, I guess anytime, even, even now with where you are right now, I mean, there's, you could, oh, you could still choose that. But the point yeah. is that through the journey, through the process, God has formed his character in you so that you are, he's he's confident like he's he's confident in what he's done like in the in the completeness of what he's done in you 
that he can now entrust this thing to you because he knows that he's what matters more to you than the actual stuff, than the actual promotion, than the actual blessing. Amen. Unreal. Yeah. On, on this journey, had I started with keeping Jesus, and I think that many of us want to keep Jesus the main thing, but we always pray for promotion for the sake of influence. We don't realize that's actually what we're asking for. But again, if Jesus is the primary focus, knowing that you have influence with God, then there is no influence greater. And so it's easy to lay down these things when you understand the audience that you actually have with the Lord. Yes. Uh, but, but starting out, we think that our validation or our relevance in ministry comes with how many people will listen to what we have to say. And honestly, we aren't that interesting. There's nothing that any ministry is going to put out. You know, I, I was talking to my wife just yesterday morning about this deep-seated need for ministries and ministers to come out with the new greatest revelation, as if, you know, this, this, you get invited to places to speak because you've dug up some new revelation that people somehow have missed over 2,000 years, right? And, and it becomes a rat race and, and this relevance rat race uh, and, and people are celebrated who come up with the most amazing new revelation. And I think that it sets us on a journey to celebrate things other than Christ. And wow. so when we lay down that race to say there is no better revelation than Christ, this is the mystery, our salvation that angels look into and they're confused. They long to fully understand what it is that we're walking in. And these are eternal creatures. They've been with the Father since the beginning. And they're looking at what he's done for us with awe. And so looking for something, again, more than Christ or a new revelation to feed people, I have learned it's really a waste of time, you know, rather than trying to win people with, with wise words. And we go in with a, not a demonstration of power alone. I, I know that's what scripture says. It, it's not just a, a, a men's words, but it's a demonstration of power. I like to go into a place and take my intimate time with the Lord and put it on display in public. And so it's not just a demonstration of power. It's a demonstration of intimacy and relationship with God. Because that's something that people can walk away with and actually produce without having wow. to say, well, I don't have that gift. Well, you don't need a spiritual gift to go into intimacy with the Lord. So I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole, but that's kind of where my heart is. Dude, I'm all about the rabbit holes. It's all, <laughs> it's all <laughs> they're dangerous, is. man. You just four hours <laughs> later and people are like, oh my gosh, this went way longer. <laughs> Man, uh, Bill Johnson says something that uh, I think really encapsulates what you're talking about. And uh, he's so he's so good at taking a big concept and putting it into a one liner. You know? yep. And he says um, something along the lines of that God is looking for a people who love not the world to entrust the world to. So it's Come like on. when that thing, when that thing that you're going after becomes less important to you than God, not that it has no importance because otherwise, I mean, God wouldn't have given it to us if it wasn't important. It's That's probably, right. it's, it's the most important in terms of assignment, but it pales in, in, in comparison to knowing him and yeah. it's knowing him and 
caring about that above all else that I think equips us to be able to, you know, effectively carry out the assignment that he's given to us. So, man, I love, I love what you're saying. I'm like jumping out of my seat over here. It's, um, it's so, it's just so good. Yeah. Amen. Well, Hey, um, before we go, uh, too much further, uh, what, I what is the lion company? Uh, I'll, I'll take maybe two of my favorite stories in this journey, uh, with the lion company, their biblical, uh, proportion type of stories where it's like, wait, what happened? Um, you know, I was, I knew that when I came to Abilene to serve as a worship pastor, that, uh, this was kind of, um, a transitional means to an end. And I was also clear with the local church that brought us in uh, to be family with. I said, you know, I, I know the Lord is sending us to Abilene. Um, and I think it's for something that will, uh, you know, eventually outgrow the role for me to be uh, a worship pastor here. And so they were more than happy to bring me in and, and do, you know, relationship and, and go down that road with us. Uh, so it was about 18 months into this role that we started to have some significant uh, encounters. I wish that I had less Christianese, but these are just weird. Um, but they're holy, but I don't have a lot of space to explain it well in a mature way that would satisfy uh, maybe the average listener. And so I'm going to explain it from uh, the perspective of me going, this is weird, but God, I know it's you. Um, so the Lord began to tell us uh, through circumstances that we uh, were coming to the end of our time uh, with this local church because we were about to be launched. Uh, a part of those prophetic words that I left out was that um, we would have four years of difficulty in Abilene. And by the time I turned 40, uh, we would have momentum to go around the world and bring change, a uh, reform to the global church, the, the bride. Uh, and that was big for me because again, we're from a small town in Kentucky with, with no ability or connection uh, to be able to speak into a global church. Uh, so as we started to see um, and, and really feel the nudging of the Lord, we started to have dreams, uh, visions, prophetic words started to stir up again that it was time to make transition. So I go to sleep and I have this random dream. Uh, for many people who don't dream, this will be extra weird for you, but I'll do my best to break it down uh, in layman's terms. So... Yeah. Um, you know, I, I go to sleep and in this dream, I am walking into a neighborhood of influence. I, I know in the dream that I'm walking into an affluent neighborhood uh, and affluence should be used for influence, right? So we're going into this neighborhood of influence and we're moving in. And I'm met by a man in the neighborhood and he says, Jonathan, what are you doing in this neighborhood? And I said, I think we're moving in. And I was really excited. And he said, well, this neighborhood is basically perfect. What could you add to this neighborhood. And he was, he was not asking in a demeaning way, but it felt in the dream, like he was challenging the purpose that we were moving into the neighborhood for. And I said, well, firstly, you have a rat problem. And when I said that the ground was suddenly covered with maybe 500 maimed rats. And I was able to gather them very quickly in the dream. And he looks at me and he's excited. And I said, well, that's not the only reason I came to this neighborhood, but it is a reason. And he said, I thought this was always going to be a problem in the neighborhood. And I said, don't be excited. He said, why? And I said, well, if there are this many maimed rats walking around in the daylight, how many are hurting in the shadows? And I woke up. Wow, come on. 
Well, as I woke up, I walk into my kitchen. My wife and I keep our house clean. We've never had a rat problem. But in real life now, I've, I've come up out of the dream. People ask me several times when I'm explaining the story. This is in real life. Yes, it's in real life. I walk into my kitchen and my kitchen is covered in what looks like 500 rats poop. I know that's a little TMI, but that's my life. I'm living it and I'm going, God, what is this? And he said, I'm going to reveal the natural, uh, or I'm sorry, the supernatural through natural means. I need you to pay attention. Come on. Well, obviously I am unsettled and I know that God is doing something, but I'm also very practical. I told you guys that earlier. So I go to Walmart and I get like $100 worth of glue traps. I think they're $2 a piece. So I paint my kitchen in glue traps. And so we're due to take our first vacation since we got to Abilene, uh, like the next day or so. And we leave and we have our friends watching our dogs. Well, they call. And the first day they say, we caught a rat. And we think the problem solved. And I said, do me a favor just to satisfy my paranoia, leave all the glue traps. So we were gone seven days and we come back. Not another rat is captured. There are no more rats. There are no more droppings anywhere. We get home. I'm too tired to pick up the glue traps. I go to sleep. I wake up and I go in and my kitchen is covered again once we got home. And I've caught another rat. And the next day I've caught another rat. And the next day I've caught another rat. I have a friend call me. He doesn't know what I'm going through and I'm, I'm too weirded out to tell anybody. And that happens sometimes when God does things, you're just like, I think this might be a personal thing. I think this might be an intimacy thing. Probably shouldn't ever say this to another human being. They'll think I'm weird or crazy or both. Uh, and he calls me and he says, Jonathan, do you believe in personal plagues? And I'm like, interesting. What, what makes you say that? And he said, I don't really know what else to say, but my, ra- my house has been overrun with rats. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, they're, they're burrowing in our valuables drawer in our home, but they're not stealing anything. They're looking for a home. And I'm like, I got to call you back. And so I hang up the phone because I don't know what to say. I don't, I don't have a meaning. And then I have another friend and he says, uh, Jonathan, I paint boats for a living. And I'm having rats run into the paint booth with all the fumes. And they're running across my feet trying to get me to chase them. And they won't quit until I chase them. Do you know what that means? And I'm like, I got to call you back. And so the next day we catch another rat and we're continuing until I finally tell the church, I think God is saying it's time for us to go. Wow. The day that I tell the church that it's time for us to make this transition, the rats go away all by themselves. And I'm like, oh my goodness, like this is, this is profound. Um, I didn't expect this to take place all by itself. No exterminator needed. Don't even ask me why I didn't get an exterminator to begin with. That would have made the most sense. So I lead my last worship set at the church uh, there. um, You know, maybe a month later, I gave them, you know, enough time to make transition. And, you know, I've led worship for 25 years. And when you have a heavy acoustic guitar on your back for several hours, your back, you know, gets cramped. And so I'm soaking my back in the bath and I get this random prophetic word. I think Chris Valentin would call it uh, spiritual intelligence. Uh, Bill Vanderbush would call it quantum, excuse me, intelligence. But because I'm from Kentucky, I call it a stumbling prophetic word. It's like I trip into a mystery and I say something that is prophetic before my mind is fruitful. And so I yelled to my wife, I said, babe, I think this is like a mice and men. 
And she said, have you ever read that book? And I said, no, have you? And she said, no. Why did you say that? And I, I tell her, I, I don't know. And she said, well, I'm going to look up the meaning. And this is the meaning of the story of Mice and Men. And, and for those of you watching, you may already know this, but in the name of love, a crippled little boy captures a mouse from the field. And because he loves the mouse so much, he refuses to let it go. Wow. And so he inadvertently squeezes the life out of the mouse until he kills it. And the word of the Lord came to me in my bath. And he says, Jonathan, this is the state of my church today. In the name of love, a crippled system has held on to sons and daughters that were meant for the wild. And in the name of love, they've held on so tight for fear of losing them that they're squeezing the life out of my sons and daughters. Mm. He said, Jonathan, will you help me change it? Will you help people return to the adventure that is me? And I, I break. I'm in my bath and I'm like filling up my bathtub with tears. You know, like, Lord, yes, yes, I'll do it. I'll do anything, God. And so uh, right after that, I have another prophetic dream. And in this dream, I'm going into the same neighborhood of influence. Only now I've been given a Ferrari. Now, that is not a prophetic word. I don't think God is going to give me a Ferrari. He might, but I don't I think it had to do with our ministry moving really fast. Because that's actually what's happened. And in the dream, as we're pulling into the neighborhood, I see this company of lions in the sky, and they're all made of cloud form. And they're moving around in real time. You know, normally a cloud would move slowly, but these lions are moving in like regular real time, only as clouds. And some were sitting down, and some were laying down, and some were standing, and some were facing the other way. And I see the Son of God come and walk in cloud form. And stand next to them. And he's not ashamed to be seen with them, but he's also not impressed. Hmm. And as he's standing there, I see the dawn break behind the lions and the sun is shining through the lions and the shadow of the lions are falling on me. And I begin to weep at the beauty of this moment. And there's this sound released from heaven. And as the sound is released from heaven, uh, the lions are immediately standing at attention, all facing the same way. And I look and they're facing Christ. And I wake up from the dream and I hear the Lord say to me, uh, not audibly, but like in my heart, he says, Jonathan, just because the lions have gathered together doesn't mean that they're in unity. Beholding me is unity. I am the great equalizer. Hmm. And I immediately knew what God was saying. There are many ministries that, that in the name of unity gather together, but their perspectives are different, just as the lions were. Some are facing left and some are facing right and some are laying wow. down and some are standing and some have their backs turned, but are still there in the general assembly of the global church. But the Lord released the sound that caused the lions to fall into alignment. And the sound was released when they all focused on beholding Jesus. He is the great wow. equalizer. And so I realized that what God is communicating, I know this is a long answer, but I think it's, it needs to be communicated in this way because many people say, what is the lion company? And if I just say a ministry, then the next question that a normal human being that's logical would ask is a ministry to what? And I might say the global church. And then the next question is, well, what qualifies you to minister to the global church? And I would say, well, the Lord. And it starts this back and forth thing, which really isn't our idea. The Lion Company wasn't my idea. I didn't lay down one night and wake up the next day and say, I'm going to do the Lion Company. As a matter of fact, after this dream, the Lord tells me also 
I've named your ministry. And I said, hmm. what's our ministry? And he said, I've, I want you to call it the Lion Company. And I was like, Lord, that's an awesome name, but I don't know what it means to cause people to see you rightly. Well, over the next few weeks, the Lord supernaturally provided an income for us. That's a, a longer story than maybe we need to go into today. But he started giving us revelations about what uh, components are missing in the global church. And he even put us with leaders of global churches in other nations, as well as in this nation. And many of them communicate the same story. Now, shockingly, people that are in the base, like base level attendee portion of church uh, today, they also communicate the same thing that people leading the churches are asking for. And this is the same thing. Uh, they all say, I think that the church is great at doing many things, uh, but there's a few things that we lack. The first thing that everyone says so far uh, is, I feel like we're not good at doing family. Wow. And that's shocking because the people leading the church and the people attending at a base level are saying that they crave deep family connection and neither one claims to have it. And the other thing that they say that they need to improve at is improving discipleship. Not that evangelism and the gospel shouldn't go forth and not that pastoring and being a prophet and being an apostle shouldn't go forth. But the reality is, what good does it do if we continue to bring souls into the kingdom? Like kind of like a one night encounter where they say yes to Jesus in this emotional moment, but they have nobody to walk out life with them the next day. And so I realized putting more fish, if we're talking about being fishers of men in the boat, isn't helpful if we don't find a way to take these new fish and turn them also into fishers of men. And so it's kind of like we're not stewarding the thing that God has given us by way of souls, which is actually more offensive. The more people I talk to uh, in leadership and again at a base level of attendee and everywhere in between, uh, they say, I really want someone to disciple me. I want someone to pour into me. Uh, and it's weird because some of these leaders of large ministries are saying, you know, I've gotten to a point in ministry where I don't feel like I've found people that can continue to teach me. You know, the scripture says that the Holy Spirit will teach us all things. So discipleship has to be more than learning new information. Wow. Uh, and we'll get maybe into that in a minute. But uh, I realize that at, at a core value, the Lion Company is to point people to Jesus, to put us on the same page, to create family connections, to do things only out of relationship, and to disciple people that will make disciples to learn what it means to be a self-starter in the kingdom from a place of passion for Jesus. And so that's kind of uh, a long answer to a short question. Man. <laughs> I know it's a lot. Prior to this, but prior to the Lion Company and, and the Lord calling you into this, you had a calling from the Lord to begin a school of supernatural ministry. Mm -hmm. um, that was the result of a dream and, and all of that. Do you feel that what you're doing now with the, the lion company, do you feel like it, it, in it, what's the word it encompasses um, that aspect of what God had spoken to you about as well? Or was that just a different season that the, does that make sense? What I'm asking? Yeah. Yeah. I think I get what you're saying. You know, the reality is 
there are times that God tells us exactly what he wants us to do. And then there are times, at least in my own experience, that he tells me what I need to hear to get me to go where I need to go. Uh, For instance, he's speaking to poor fishermen about riches in the kingdom of heaven, which they will have, but it's a wonderful motivator to get them to go on this wild adventure with the Lord. I mean, they had already said yes to him, Mm. but they're right in the middle of like this, you know, in the wild with God. And that's not always easy. Right. Um, And so he's talking to them about having for me, uh, he was pulling me into the desire to have a school of supernatural ministry. And I think in some ways it can be both um, because what we're doing is training people. We're discipling people. We're teaching them about family core fundamentals of beholding Jesus. We're just doing it on a global scale. And I think that if I would have remained static, uh, there, there are several things that had to happen in order for us to be able to take the risks that we took, because honestly, in Florida, things were so good. I didn't really have a reason to leave. If that makes sense, there are just certain positions that you get in in life where it gets more difficult to walk away from it because of the stability that it provides. Hmm. And I think that those are one of the most dangerous things that you can get into when stability becomes the core value and everything you do from the Lord is from that place of stability, because really at the end of the day, he is the stability. And so he needed us to be hungry to disciple people but he didn't need us to be dependent on our circumstances. There's a really extreme example of that in scripture. I think when God tells Abraham to take his son up on the mountain and sacrifice him and, you know, had Abraham just stuck to that same thing, it was what God said. And so he was on that journey and he was responding in radical obedience to do that. But I mean, had Abraham, stuck to the the status quo or to the way that things were essentially living in the living in the past you know yeah. living just based on what god said and you know becoming almost like almost like a prisoner to that and was not listening to the next thing that god was saying to do then uh, that could have been you know devastating <laughs> it could have been it could have been it's it's always rapid obedience it's not one time yeah yeah exactly Man, that's so good. Well, you kind of uh, broke the plane there as far as um, getting us into this uh, discipleship discussion. And I'm curious, man, because, um, you know, this is a this is a big part of what you do. I want to just uh, read another another portion here from your website, uh, Defining the Lion Company. It says, you know, again, back to the statement that I made earlier about the vision and goal being Jesus himself wanting to bring uh, unity among Christians in various areas and all experience levels around the world. It says, we do this through love, relationship, discipleship, and education, equipping the inactive believer and helping them discover and act on their God-intended purpose. Discipleship is a, is a big aspect of what, of what you guys do. And really, discipleship is a <laughs> defining characteristic of the church, of, of who we're supposed to be in terms of we are disciples of Jesus, but what does that actually mean? You know, you mentioned yeah. they're catching all these fish, but not raising up <laughs> fishers of men. And so if we're just kind of bringing people into, you know, the knowledge of God, but not training them and not equipping them and not even in, in a lot of cases, not even making them aware of right. what a disciple is in terms of by definition, somebody who not only follows Jesus, but actually does what Jesus did. And what did Jesus do? Jesus made disciples. So by definition, a disciple makes disciples. And so um, I'm just curious, like, how would you 
just kind of display it displaying. I am man. When I do two podcasts in a row, it's not it's good okay. for, for, for the English language. How would you explain to somebody like just on a very foundational level, what is discipleship in the first place or what does it mean to be a disciple or to disciple yeah. somebody? If you're not familiar with the term disciple uh, easily understood, it's, it's the word student. Uh, you're becoming a student. Uh, but I think that it's important to kind of look at what actually was happening. Some people read through the scripture and we know that there were 12 disciples and, and we, we see that these guys go on to do great things. They, they get known as the guys that turn the world upside down and they work miracles. And, and so we start strategizing um, maybe how to do that. And I think at a core level, we have gotten things kind of out of balance. We've almost, you know, if they turn the world upside down, we've tried to turn it right side up again. And I want to explain that step one in Jesus's discipleship methodology was calling people out of stability into adventure. That was step one. Wow. Many of us would not blindly go and follow a man that we just met into adventure and walk away from stability. We have actually, and in my life, I have advised against people doing that, calling it immature, hmm. calling it you know, like radical faith, like I really appreciate your faith, but you should maybe slow down. Wow. But now in this journey, you realize the first thing that the Lord does is he calls them to radical adventure. Hmm. After he calls them to radical adventure, we see him leading people into moving in supernatural power, go and heal the sick. Remember that he didn't ask them to do that once he had already died. So like right. step one is kind of go do the supernatural. Why is that important to start with the supernatural? Because in today's world, we make the supernatural the pinnacle moment of kingdom living. And as a result of that, we start working on our character first, apart from the Holy Spirit. And we try to temper ourselves into being mature Christians who are, quote unquote, worthy to work the supernatural. And we actually invite people to our churches based on their ability to do the supernatural. And these supernatural people, when they have character flaws and their ministries fall apart, we are offended. We begin to fall apart because our superheroes in the faith have made a mistake. Wow. Well, if you're discipling people and you call them to adventure and you release them into supernatural activity first, then you have time to walk with them in that place to temper and, and steward character in the process. Realizing that the disciples had unbelief even up until after the crucifixion. Many of us would say this is a character flaw. And this is what Jesus was burning out of them even up to the very end was character flaws. All of them were capable of doing the supernatural. That was at a base level of discipleship. But in today's church, we've turned it upside down. And so wow. we've said, if you can do the supernatural things, if you can flex your gift, then you can come to our church because we want your gift. And then the people that have the gifts, and this is, this is, it's a blanket statement. It's not specific to every individual. So I want to make sure that I'm not just like hammering the bride. That's not what I'm trying to do, but we have celebrated the gift so much that then people come in with radical gifts and in many cases, limited character. And we, we think, man, like once I meet these people at this top level, because there's like this, this uh, imaginary leveling system we do in the church, hmm. 
not realizing that Jesus died to make us like Christ. So he's the great standard. Again, he is the, he is the point. We celebrate people with a gift as opposed to viewing them according to the spirit. That's what we're supposed to do. The scripture says we're supposed to judge people according to the spirit. And, and for many of us, that means that they can do supernatural things. And if we were in Jesus's day, doing supernatural things was a base level. There were even magicians with Moses who were doing the supernatural and they weren't people of good character. And this is before the cross. And so Jesus starts out his discipleship methodology with come to adventure, do the supernatural, and the rest of the time is working on character and unbelief. And so for us, discipleship looks like taking off my ability to manipulate or control you based on my gifting. I'm not holding a gift over your head saying, if, you know, you meet my expectations, then I will then pour into you this gifting that I've learned how to do. Instead, my family, my son included, who's 12, we lead people into the gifting saying, look at Jesus. This is what he paid for. And then we take our hands off. And if people are truly called to be in our lives and, and do relationship with us, now we have nothing on you, which means if you're going to remain in relationship with us, it's going to be by your free will choice and not looking to attain something. So we just start out in family with people. We say, do you need an opportunity? Let us try to help you get one. Or if you already know what you're called to do, let us push you to do the thing that you're called to do. And then if you want to walk out relationship, then genuine discipleship happens from a place of free will on both sides. It's not, you know, forcing. And I'm not saying that that every person that's ever discipled anybody's gotten it wrong. I'm just saying I'm paying attention to the the common sense of what we see in Scripture. And I think if you had 100 people read the Scripture and 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 they weren't theologians, they would be like, well, the disciples started out doing radical miracles. And when they couldn't, it was a character or a faith building exercise. The disciples couldn't cast out demons. And Jesus says, oh, this kind comes out through, you know, prayer and fasting. Hmm. But he didn't give them the rule book on how to do the supernatural first. They didn't get an education in the scriptures first. Hmm. They got an education in trust in God first. So wow. step one, adventure. Step two, adventure. It looks like He's constantly leading them into greater adventure. And their education came from taking risk through obedience with God. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Oh, what an answer, man. It's um, it's interesting there. Uh, I think it's another Bill Johnson-ism, maybe, where he says that the disciples belonged before they believed. And it was this thing yeah. where Jesus just... I mean, he's kind of picking them out, you know, one by one or, you know, so in some cases, two by two or whatever. But it's like, it's like, stop what you're doing and follow me. And it's like, okay. <laughs> That's so radical. That is so beyond like, can you imagine a CEO of a corporation meeting somebody that's a true follower of Jesus and that follower saying, leave your stability and follow me? Yes. Like we would actually say yeah. today, oh, that's a cult. You should never do that. And that's exactly what our Lord did. And our goal is to become more like Jesus in the journey. And so our value system is to do life with people in relationship. As a matter of fact, like when you originally reached out, I hope it's okay that I share. But when you, you messaged me about doing this podcast, I was like, I want a conversation. 
I want to get to know you. I want to, I want to know what your, you know, your family's like and, and your adventure that you're on with God, because we believe that when you do things out of relationship, like genuine fruit and family come from that. Mm-hmm. And so we've had many opportunities where people are like, we want you to come to our church. I'm like, I want to get to know you first. I don't want to come as a stranger and say, here are the, the adventures that I've been on with the Lord just to tickle your ears. I want your heart to burn for Jesus. And I think that the best way to do that is, is truly just a face-to-face conversation. And another thing that you said there that was so incredible is uh, the fact that when the disciples, they had these opportunities to, I mean, they were just following in the footsteps of Jesus and they were doing the supernatural as well. We see, you know, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sending them out saying, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, and cast out demons, yeah. freely you've received, freely give. But what you mentioned there is when they had a situation where they couldn't do it or when a miracle didn't work, they didn't have a theology that said, oh, well, I guess it wasn't supposed to work for that person. They went to Jesus and questioned, why didn't this work? They had an expectation that when they did what Jesus did, when they did what Jesus showed them how to do, they had an expectation that it was supposed to work. And I think that that's something that's so missing today, man. That expectation that it's like the normal Christian life. It's the normal Christian experience, supernatural living, supernatural lifestyle. It's not something, as you said, that's reserved for these few people that we invite to come in and to share their stories and to share their experiences. And hopefully we have a little bit of a spark or something. But I feel like so often what we do in discipleship, and I'm doing air quotes for anybody that's just (laughs) listening to this. That in discipleship, what we do is we try to uh, fully sometimes, I I don't know, and tell me if I'm off base here, but I feel like sometimes in the church, we try to fully disciple people through our church services. And so Mm -hmm. what what I've seen, what I see happen a lot is our Sunday morning or, you know, the main weekend experience of the church is very kind of, um, you know, like inspirational or whatever. And then maybe like later on in the week, there's something that we would term like discipleship. And it's for those that want to go deeper. The challenge with that is that usually it's maybe 10% of the church that actually comes and participates in those, in those uh, services or in those experiences. And then, so what we have is almost like a watered down and I don't say, and I mean, I'm not trying to be critical by any means. I'm just saying like, sometimes we have this kind of watered down approach where we don't show people, we don't, we don't, in other words, we don't expose people to the fullness of the gospel in our regular church setting or in regular church life. They have to go to a special class <laughs> or they yeah. have to come to a special weekend or to some kind of an out of town encounter or some other kind of experience in order to, to get that aspect of what this discipleship process is or to, you know, maybe to get the baptism in the Holy Spirit or, you know, whatever it might be, right? Like to go to a deeper, a deeper level. And, you know, I I just think that we, we often in the church is like, we, we shoot people in the foot. We hold people at a disadvantage because we're not from the beginning exposing them to the real culture of the kingdom. Right. And um, I don't know about you, I think that's something that we need to work on. Yeah, you know, to add to some of that, I have to, again, go back to Christ's time with the disciples. You can read all the passages, Bibles readily available on the Internet, and you see Jesus uh, is constantly walking with the disciples 
And the only break that he took with the, from them is to wake up before them to go spend time with the father. The only break that he took from the multitude is to go recharge with the father. Today, we take a six and a half day break and we spend a little bit of time with the body. And, and so, again, our methodology, we're frustrated that the church isn't growing, doing, moving or accomplishing but we're also not applying the same fundamentals that we see walked out in life. It's not the thing specifically written, but it's the life on life strategy of heaven to say, like, I have so many people ask me this. What does life look like for you, Jonathan, when you're at home with your son and your wife? And, and these are people that live in other states that can't be here direct. Uh, and I have to tell them that it looks identical to when I'm in public doing ministry. Because if I'm turning on and turning off something, then it's not truly being authentic to the call on my life. It's not true to the identity that God has given me or the, or the human filter for Christ to show on the earth. That's why he chose to put me here is that version that he wants people to see coming through me. The same for you and every other believer. And so, you know, I think that when I want to be careful with my words, because, again, I don't I don't want to seem critical yeah. We only reproduce as a body what we've been taught. It's yes. not like people pull emotional, mental, relational, spiritual skills out of things that haven't been shared with us. So it's not, there's not like a fault to give to anyone. You're only able to reproduce. Uh, Evan Roberts said this of the Welsh Revival. He said, people don't reproduce what they teach. They reproduce who they are. And when you let that sink in, you realize that, yeah. oh, my gosh, like, why is this thing breaking out in my church? Well, what are you practicing when nobody's looking? Is it really a part of your personhood in Christ that's bleeding through? If you're a lover of the presence of God, everywhere you go is going to be infectious with the love of the presence of God. But if I teach it outside of being truly authentically living that out, then I'm only giving you head knowledge, which can be damning to give you information apart from passion. I think those two things should always be married hmm. uh, because Jesus didn't sit in a circle and say, now boys, this is what we're going to do. And here's all the rules. It was truly this place of passion uh, and, and obedience for his bidding that they were like, I'm in, you know, where else would we go? Lord, you alone hold the words of life like that. That's, that's not a head knowledge statement. That is a passionate statement. So, I think, you know, it would be helpful if the church would take away the formality of discipleship. Quit giving it a class. Quit worrying about mass discipleship. I think that there is merit to what you said. Can discipleship really happen on a Sunday? And, and if I'm being very general, I have to say no. It's not because people don't learn, grow, or fall in love with God on a Sunday. Those things happen. It's not that people don't get filled with the Holy Spirit on a Sunday. Those things happen. That's amazing. Yeah. Miracles happen. But if discipleship is turning people into students that fall in love with Jesus because they see what your life is like when it's not on a Sunday, then we're probably missing the mark. If Jesus's only break was to spend time with the Father away from the people that he was teaching, then we could probably have more people around more often to invite them into our personal spaces, to sit around tables. And, and, and I love the idea of the table. I love the idea of breaking bread, but it still even has to be more than that. Mm. Like 
the people that I'm discipling need to see me ministering to other people so they can have some grid as to what it might look like for them. And the reason I say for them isn't because uh, there isn't one way to do it. It's just that people aren't static. Uh, and, And we have to remember that when we're discipling, like there isn't a book that you're going to read besides scripture that's going to give you the perfect way to disciple people because we're all coming from different experiences. I, I told my wife once, um, you know, the earth is a planet full of worlds. Why? Mm-hmm. Because all of us are having a different human experience and none of us leave with the exact same opinion of the earth. And so when I'm discipling people, I'm not necessarily saying do this step and this step and this step and this step. I'm typically responding or being proactive to things that I discern in the person based on time spent with them. And I just can't do that on a Sunday or a Wednesday night. That's, that's really the truth. It's the effectiveness of my discipleship is based on how much time I get with the person that I'm spending, uh, uh, how much time I'm spending with the person. Uh, And the more time I spend with the person, the more that I know them. And I, I start to pick up on things that they need ministry to. Instead of just saying, well, I, I took you through the steps. Why aren't you doing this stuff? And it's because we didn't get enough time together. So I'm more, uh, um, I, have, I have a strong lean to have a smaller circle of people I'm discipling. Mm-hmm. And I pay attention to the fruit of my discipleship. What does that mean? Um, I'll give you a practical example. If I'm pouring into a person's life and this person gets a desire to pour into someone else's life, that I don't know. The greatest thing that I could say about my ability to disciple, now I don't mean this like specifically in this moment, I just mean for any person, is if I minister, let's just say for for, um, all intents and purposes, I minister to my son and my son goes and ministers to one of his friends. And then his friend comes back around whom I do not know. And he's using the same language that I poured into my son that I know that my discipleship channel is pure. Does that make sense? Like if I pour into a person who pours into a person and they come out with the same message and conclusion that I poured into the first step, then I know that that discipleship is working. If I pour into a person and this person goes to minister to a stranger and this person doesn't feel like they're my DNA, then something is missing in my ability to communicate to the person I'm discipling. And I would add, if I'm ministering to my son and I don't trust my son, to hold me accountable to the same truth that I put into him, then I really don't trust the message that I'm communicating. More times than not, people in churches love to minister and disciple. And, I, and this is broad. This is not specific to any individual. But they'll minister to an individual who then tries to hold them accountable to the same standard. And they say, you can't do that. I'm your elder. But the, the honesty, the integrity, and the truth is that it should be able to be applied no matter where you are in life. Yes. And so if I'm teaching somebody something, and then they call my character into question and they use the same truth that I taught them, it should be welcomed because then the evidence is that Jesus is the truth and not just my methods. Wow. I said a lot again, but hopefully that helps. No, it's so good. It's so helpful. I agree with you um, 100% with what you said there. I, I don't think that we can do discipleship from a platform or through a service and the idea of like mass discipleship i mean we can take class you know there, there's obvious there's obvious merit and, and benefit to to that right obviously to going yeah. to church and to being in that corporate worship environment and 
to go into the extra classes and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I think it's all great. I think it's all, you know, part of the, of the journey of being educated and wanting to learn more and go deeper. And we can have amazing experiences in those places, but yes. I think that discipleship of necessity requires there to be that proximity of relationship where, you know, I'm opening my life up to you. What one of the, and I love the way that you're explain, you know, explaining this about it going, it just going deeper than that, it going further than that. So where people actually have a window into your life and into the way you minister to others. And, uh, you know, I had, I had a friend on this podcast probably about a year ago, and he talked about the way just practically how he does discipleship in daily life. And he, he just shared a very, very simple story of uh, this young man that, that um, he was kind of in the, in the early stages, I think, of, the, of a discipleship journey with and uh the guy called him up and said um you know i need to talk to you i'm kind of going through something i don't remember what the circumstances were it's not really important but he said uh you know i need to talk to you and he said okay well um i'm about to go to the grocery store can you can you come over and and uh we'll go together and he was like oh okay so then he comes and they go to the grocery store they're walking you know they spend 30 minutes 45 minutes whatever it is just kind of up and down the aisles and yeah. all along they're just talking and then he's like, hey, do you, um, I'm bringing these groceries home and my wife's going to cook dinner. Do you want to uh, come and have dinner with us? And he's like, uh, OK. So then they go and then they're having dinner together and they're just talking and spending time together. And then this guy hung out with them all night, like all you know, into the evening. And he said, um, hey, I'm going to uh, I've got to tuck my my daughter in to bed. I'm going to read her a bedtime story. And um, you want to come up with me and uh, and read her a bedtime story with me? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's getting really real. Like that's getting really into, and I think we can maybe have a co little conversation about boundaries too, because there might be, you know, some stuff there, but I mean, you know, he, he brings him up into his kid's room and he lets him participate in this storytelling, you know, thing. And, and, uh, you know, it, it turns out that this, this young man, like he didn't, he didn't have that. Like that wasn't something that he knew personally in his life the the closeness of family and father you know father um father figure you know what i mean like all yeah. of that kind of stuff and to me that was one of the most beautiful pictures of actual practical real yeah. life discipleship that i've that i've seen that i've heard of because it's not you know you talked about like taking the programming out of it not that yeah. programs in and of themselves are wrong but when we put the weight of a person's discipleship journey on a program, we don't teach them what it is to actually, that's, right. you know, that's not duplicatable. We don't teach right. them how they could actually live this out and they can duplicate the same process to somebody else that they have an opportunity to walk through life with and to disciple as well. And so um, I just think that the practicality of just doing life with people where it's not this this thing that's got such, you know, defined parameters of I do discipleship on Tuesdays and Thursdays from four to 6 right. p.m. And like, right. it's like, no, it's I've got to be willing yeah. to an extent to open up my my life. That's um, right. To another individual. Yeah. Well, you have to ask the question, like. When when you leave this world, you know, I heard somebody say, I don't know, last year, you know, in 100 years, no one will remember that we were even here. And, and you can change that paradigm through legacy. And legacy is lived out in, in the idea 
of truly um, teaching. Some some people don't like the language of family, so they don't like the idea of like spiritual fathering. Uh, and I understand that, but just for for this moment, uh, I think it's relevant to say that when you're pouring in to a soul, you are ultimately fathering, even though you're not their father. Uh, you're you're fathering in a way that says, I love this person as if I love a son or a daughter. And how do I love my son? I set them up for success at every turn. And even the challenges they face are intentional so that I can have them learn to be a critical thinker and I'm giving them soft grass to fall on. You know, I use this analogy a lot. Um, and let's just use prophecy because, you know, that's, that's a part of what we do. Let's say that in today's church world, hypothetically speaking, someone has never been on the platform with a microphone, and now they've gotten their first prophetic unction. They don't know what to do with it. So mid-service, they go to the pastor and they say, I feel like, I feel like God gave me a word. Okay, uh, pastor feels good in his heart. Like, yeah, I think maybe this is right. The person goes up there. Now they're nervous, their hands are shaking, they're sweating, and they know what they feel is right, but what comes out is this angry prophetic word bringing judgment to every person in the church. Uh -huh. It's not that the word was wrong, it's the person hasn't had time to use the palette, which would be their words, to paint the picture, which is the prophetic unction of their heart. And so now many people in the church hear this person, and, and they completely devalue the prophetic gifting this person is growing into, because they missed. And in extreme cases, I've witnessed this or otherwise I wouldn't reference it. In extreme cases, they're labeled a false prophet because wow. what came out of their mouth didn't resonate with everybody in the room. Yes. And this is a this is a, at its core uh, what it looks like to have poor discipleship. If I love my son and I'm teaching him to ride his bike, I don't put him on the freeway and say, <laughs> good luck, son. You know, try not to fall down. I love you and I want to give you this opportunity. So go hit the freeway. If I love him, I'm going to give him a controlled environment where he can practice this ability until he does it without needing me. Then when I put him on the freeway, I'm never thinking in the back of my head. I wonder if he was able to ride. Hopefully you're not riding bikes on the freeway. But the, the point is. We have to create safe space for people to fail and celebrate the courage, not necessarily the success of hearing accurately. And that's just wow. a prophetic. But what happens when it comes to evangelism? What happens when it comes to pastoring people? And many times, I mean, honestly, like Duke, if, if you know of an, an instance, please speak into this. But how many times have you heard of people saying, I have a call to start a church and they go start a church, but they've never pastored. Hmm. And so they're learning through a trail of bodies and broken hearts and lives that they've wounded wow. inadvertently because wow. they didn't have anybody to disciple them on how to pastor appropriately. Wow. You see my point? Yes. We have to create space for people to do things with intentionality and celebrate the courage. And that's only done in healthy discipleship. And I would say even a step further, discipleship for Jesus is what many of us would call family today. Like, the only people that are around you basically more than they're not is your DNA family. So we have to find people that our hearts burn to see grow. I, I've said this for years. The perfect people for our churches are not found. They're made. 
Hmm. We keep praying that God will send this anointed worship pastor, this wonderful prophet, this excellent teacher, that God will send it. But the scripture says that the Holy Spirit will add to the church, Hmm. that we are meant to go and make disciples. But instead, we say God will go and add to the church if you'll send us the right people. So we're asking God, God, can I do your job and you can do mine and we'll both be happy. And then it doesn't work and we wonder why. It's because we're unwilling to do the thing that we're actually meant to do. And so, again, I think that, you know, discipleship, uh, these were one of the questions that you sent me in advance, like that you may ask. And I think it's worth mentioning, you know, healthy discipleship starts as soon as you know more than somebody sitting next to you. Does it mean that you should have every answer to life? Nobody does. So many people that I've met, they disqualify themselves from discipling others because they don't feel like they know enough. But for me, discipleship should look like I know more than the person I'm teaching with humility to say, I don't know if they ask a question that you don't know. But there's this feeling when we're discipling people that we think that unless we have an answer for every question they're ever going to ask, then we're inadequate. So the church becomes stagnant. And I think that's wildly unhealthy. Now, are there perfect storm scenarios where you know exactly what this person needs to disciple them? Sure. Are those awesome situations? Absolutely. But I think if we're playing on the rule of averages, most of us don't know everything that everybody needs. I would say few of us know everything that everybody needs. So rather, why don't we invest in people for the things that we do know that we can add value to their life and just leave it truly at that and leave the rest of our time together, the joy of fellowship. That was what the the New Testament first century church had so right. Their, their, Their best evangelism tactic was connection in a public setting. People saw these people meeting in public spaces and being family, and they knew that they were Christians by what? Their love. And so I think that rather than having to know it all, we we find people that we can love well, doesn't mean that it's going to be easy, and we walk with them in life. And as we learn, we teach. And that's so good. You know, if, if our focus is on building big ministries rather than building big people, then yep. there's going to be we're going to we're going to have a we're going to have a problem we're going to see the fruit of that you know we're going to yeah. see we're going to see the fruit of maybe i end up having a, a ministry that's got lots of numbers of people but what do those individuals actual look actually look like are they people that are going to be able to you know like are they are they people that are going to be prepared to actually keep this thing going, to carry the baton, right. to run with it, and to you know bring more and more people um, into the not into the ministry, but into the kingdom, into the family of God. And so, what you're saying here is just it's it's awesome, dude. Like what you're saying, it's kind of like in my mind distilling this process down into like a a, a really small form. Um, Heidi Baker has this you know statement. What 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 she and, and her husband did in Mozambique from the beginning, all those years yeah. ago, the word of the Lord was stop for the one. And when you yep. look at how many hundreds of churches that they've planted and how many, you know, people have come to the Lord and how many people have been saved, how many people raised from the dead, like all these reports, all these incredible stories, 
when you say yeah. stop for the one and then you look years later and you see probably hundreds of thousands of people that have come to know Jesus through the through the ministry it's like how does stopping for the one equate to hundreds of thousands of people it's because that's the desire of God from the beginning it's it's a multiplication principle it's not just adding you know adding a person here and adding a person there and getting a, a group of people it's it's multiplying it's when i when i uh can when i'm a disciple and then i uh, duplicate what i've learned and i build it you know i make a disciple i create a disciple and now i've equipped that person to go and do the same it's exponential growth and so right. we can see the process of what jesus originally intended by spending all of this time as you said day in and day out hours and hours of his life just pouring into his closest friends pouring into those that were closest to him and just going through the process of living life and doing doing life with people and then they were able to turn around and they were able to model and demonstrate the same thing and it's it's what you said man it's loving people it's loving people. It's serving people. It's living our lives that way. But our focus, um, our, you know, I just think, man, in, in life, we can get so we can get so distracted from what's really, really important. And, you know, I can be and, and I get it. You know, the, the, the more we the more we grow, whether it's business, ministry, whatever it is. But the, the, the more that we grow, the more that thing there. I don't know, like it might require more of our attention. It might require more of our focus. It might require more of whatever, but if it requires so much of my attention that I don't ever have time for actually walking with and doing life with people, then right. I'm missing out on something that's very, very fundamental, not just to my life, not just to that person, but ultimately to the longevity of this whole thing. Like we are talking about a hundred years from now, your legacy can actually live on after you're gone. Why? Because you've poured into somebody who poured into somebody else who poured into somebody else. And I, I just think that ultimately that's the desire of God that we would see that exponential growth. But again, I think it happens when our focus is on loving the, the, the person or loving the people that God has called us to loving them well and serving them well. Um, and with the desire to build people not just yeah. ministries or organizations yeah and I, I'm, I'm gonna probably step into the fire a little bit here so i hope this doesn't get us in trouble uh with the general public there is a, a big mentality uh and, and it's nothing that's communicated i want to be clear to say that I, I don't know of any ministry communicating this around the world but there's this understanding that is this uncommunicated understanding that evangelism, the point of evangelism is many, 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 many souls. Mm -hmm. But the way that I read the scripture, the point of evangelism is the gospel. And so we actually give clout to evangelists that have, you know, millions of souls uh, coming to say yes to Jesus. But it, again, if the next day they don't have somebody walking with them, and I would ask, let's just say 100 million people come to Christ. Do you have 50 million people to disciple them? <laughs> yeah. 
And so if, if the value system, you know, Jesus said something, uh, I forget the reference exactly where it is, but he said something pretty uncomfortable. He said, salvation is given to those that endure to the end. The end of what? I would assume the end of your life or your time on earth. Um, because it doesn't give you much more detail beyond that. And so if running the race is the most important thing, it's not that I'm against millions of souls coming into the kingdom. Lord Jesus, may it be. But may it also be met with 50 million people or more that are ready to lay down their lives to put somebody else's needs first. I mean, Jesus also said, no greater love has a person then to lay down their life for their friends. And, and that's kind of what you start when you're discipling people. If you can't call the people that you're discipling friends, I would question the quality of the relationship. Mm. It's not that, um, again, I don't want to get us in trouble, but the idea that I've had really mature leaders of the global church tell me like, you can't be friends with people. Hmm. And, and that scares me because the reality is Jesus had friends. And he laid down his life for them. And I think that a, a marking quality of wonderful discipleship is when I'm willing to put my needs to the back so that others can, can have uh, time, love, affection, finances, food, clothes, uh, the needs of their family met. Like when I'm discipling somebody, it's not just about giving them information and I'm not bringing in... Um, you know, when you go into hospitals and they bring in these students to observe, I'm not bringing in student observers to my life to say, pay attention, bring a notepad. Yeah. I'm bringing in friends that get access to maybe parts of me that the rest of the world just doesn't simply by proximity have access to. And I want to minister to their needs so that their, their mind isn't half caught up in what they don't have. Mm. And that allows them to be more free to pay attention to what's going on in front of them so that when they go to disciple people, they know that they're laying down their life for someone. And, and you had mentioned boundaries and you wanted to cover that. I think that that's a wonderful segue to boundaries. When I create boundaries for people that I'm discipling, uh, most of the time I have to ask some core questions in, my, in myself, which is, do I have the capacity to pour into this life? Now, please hear me. I, I'm not saying that you have to have all the spiritual muscles to pour into a person. You're going to grow in the process. But the reality is, if I know myself well, and I know what I can and can't commit to, and I've, I've counted the cost of what it takes to pour into a life, yeah. and I've done this enough now that I know, if I say yes to more than I have the capacity for, then I'm saying no to other things that matter just as much. Wow. And so the quality of my relationships will plummet because I've stretched myself too thin and the quality of my discipleship will plummet because I'm not actually able to reproduce Jesus in this person. And that is the goal. It's not asking them to, to look like me. You know, remember, follow me as I follow Christ. Christ. He's saying, do what I do, not, not get behind me. Mm -hmm. And I think we miss that a lot of the time. He's not saying, if you follow me, then you get to be one rung below, and then there'll be Jesus, then me, then you. Yeah. It's instead, follow me as I follow Christ. He's saying, um, you put your left hand out, and you shake it all about. Like, now you do that. 
It doesn't mean you get behind me and mimic. It means run with me together. Follow me as I follow Christ. So he's saying mimic this, follow after Christ. So, you know, the understanding that discipleship is about making people like you really at its core, even though I, I love that language, I think it can be a little unhelpful. I think that the goal is to make people look like Jesus and and that can be really vague at times, especially if our view of Jesus isn't healthy. Because, you know, you have people that, that grew up with abuse and then they use this language. You know, I just, I want God to rip this out of me. I want them like, and you hear what, where their, their worldview is coming from based on the way that they were treated growing up or how they perceive their relationship with God. Like, unless I'm suffering, it isn't like, you know, and, and some people are, are the polar opposite. You know, unless it's blessed, it's not God. What does that mean? Because it's it's your perspective of blessing. Um, I use this word family a lot. That's another great example. Your version of family may not be my version of family. And so when I say, I want to disciple you and we're going to be family, you're hearing probably, oh, it's going to be like everything that I loved about my family minus all of the problems. So now you're coming with unspoken standards. And when I don't meet them, I'll frustrate you. Wow. And so this stuff doesn't get worked out unless we really sit and have long, ridiculous conversations. We live life together and we understand that neither of us are static. There is no perfect way to get this done. The goal is to go out and adventure with the Lord, lean on him rather than leaning on ourselves or our experiences to make people that look like him. Wow. You know, as you're talking, um, I I just had a thought. So this is just kind of a, a question that came up in my mind. Um, do you think an aspect, an important aspect of discipleship is? Uh, here's here's what I'm thinking. Like as as you were explaining what you were just explaining, it's yeah. almost like we've got to be willing to love people enough to get before the Lord. To like, you know, if if I find that I'm Let's say I'm walking with somebody, I'm discipling somebody and something comes up that, you know, maybe because as you said, you know, talking about capacities and stuff like that, where maybe mm -hmm. I get into a, a, a point where, you know, there's something going on in this person's life or something that they're dealing with or going through that I'd like to be able to speak into. But if I'm if I'm honest, I don't really I don't really know. I don't really know how to speak into that or I feel like I'm somehow limited I'm wondering, like, do you think an important aspect of discipleship is this thing where where, you know, we've got to be willing to love people enough to to stay before the Lord on our own? Like, you know, this is why I think that one of the reasons why, um, you know, God calls us to this kind of lifestyle. You know, if if I'm living this kind of lifestyle where, you know, I'm there's there's somebody above me. Right. Or there's people above me that pour into my life. And there's people on sort of my level that I'm doing life with, that I'm just walking with, and there's friendship there, and we're just kind of growing together. And there's also, you know, somebody or there's people below me that I have, not below me in terms of hierarchies, that's not what I mean. But right. like, you know, just I just think for the word picture is helpful. Somebody that I'm pouring into at that point. So it's like, I'm learning from others, I'm walking with others, and I'm also pouring out what I've learned in others so that there's this kind of like constant um cycle going on of growth and walking it out and practicing stuff that I'm learning and also imparting that to other people all yeah. the while 
I should be spending time with the Lord in his presence on my own, learning from the Holy Spirit, growing in my relationship with God. But I just think that all of this is designed by God to work together in this way where, you know, when something comes up that I don't feel like I have the capacity to speak into because I haven't experienced it before to, I don't know, like I could just say, and it's fine. I think there's times for this. You know what? Let me put you in. Let me refer you to somebody <laughs> who right. who I feel like could speak into that better. I think that that's great. But also, yep. I think there's times to say, um, you know what? I don't know the answer to that. But let me uh, let me see if you know I can go before the Lord and um, and maybe He'll show me something. And whether you articulate that out loud or it's just something that you decide to do on your own, I think about it kind of in the context of, you know, if if I'm uh, you know, maybe I'm experiencing breakthrough in terms of praying for the sick in certain areas, but then there's there's an aspect of ministry that I'm just not seeing breakthrough. And it's like when I pray for this kind of sickness or I, I pray for this kind of thing, I'm not seeing the breakthrough happen or I'm not seeing it often or whatever. I can I can in my mind try to explain that away or kind of like put that in a different column where it's like I just don't get breakthrough in that area or I could allow like my love for people to to like push me to go deeper with God until I start to see breakthrough in that area. So sure. anyway, this is a little bit of a convoluted question. I was just wondering if uh, maybe you're tracking with me or not. But but if you uh, feel like that's like kind of an aspect of discipleship as well, where it's like me having somebody or a group of people that I'm pouring into it kind of constantly keeps me or should keep me, I think, making sure that I'm connected to the source so that I always have something to pour away and give away. And it's not just coming, you know, from me. It's not just coming out of myself because they don't, at the end of the day, need Duke or Jonathan. What they need is right. Jesus. That's right. And so, yeah. Yeah, I'll speak to both things. So firstly, uh, the correction aspect, you know, how do, how do I speak into to something that I don't necessarily know how to touch? Maybe uh, you've started discipleship and now you've seen something that needs to be addressed and you can tell it's a sensitive subject for the person uh, and, and you're worried that you're going to wound them maybe or, or bring that, you know, that correction. Um, a love language of God, a love language of God is correction. He corrects those he loves. Mm. So if we start communicating the fear of correction with our apprehensiveness, then we're actually communicating to the person that correction doesn't look like love. Wow. And so it's wow. important to model this, uh, this place of saying love and correction are the same. It's mm -hmm. saying, I want better for you than what I'm perceiving to be a problem. But it equally comes from a place of invitation. Here's an example. If I meet a person and they're morbidly obese, and I say to them, you know what would fix that problem is to eat more salad. The end result is offense. Hmm. I don't want to correct anything that doesn't have an invitation. Now, if the overarching invitation is discipleship, then I communicate to them in the beginning. This means that if I perceive something, you trust God in me to sharpen yes. you. And if they say, yes, I've had some people, uh, we did a video on this uh, recently on our website. You guys can go watch it. Shameless plug. Uh, but it's, it's about discipleship. Uh, it's called the discipleship. Uh, 
And yeah. I remember in the early days, we were trying to, to, to pour into people's lives. And I just had a really strong conviction to communicate up front what that might look like. And I'm communicating the things I'm communicating to you. And I've had people get up after asking us to disciple them and then me say, okay, this is what it looks like. They've got up and just walked out my front door. Wow. Because they were so uncomfortable with what it actually looked like to be discipled. And we have to make sure that we are not um, so insecure that we need them to stay if we communicate a standard that doesn't sit well with them. Wow. We often read this in scripture to those that have an ear, let them hear. There is this statement of like security and in, in the message that we don't need to convince people to, to trick them into discipleship. I would rather clearly communicate the standards up front. And if you haven't, you've been discipling people. Maybe it's time to sit down and have an honest conversation and to say it from a place of love. Uh, the best way that you can say the truth is in love. If you say the truth apart from love and relationship, the end result can be offense. So in the same scenario, if a person comes to me and they say, I'm struggling with my health, what can I do? Well, now they've given me an invitation to bring a solution. And so discipleship at its core is that. The other thing is the language of making sure that we don't create problems in the future. If we create even, even the semantics of this, this hierarchy picture, that, and it's a great picture, but if we create this hierarchy picture for people we're discipling who have less character and we use those pictures, then they will use that picture for other people without the character to back it up in love. And then they can begin lording over people. We see this in the church today. So healthy people at one point use this picture and then they start discipling other people. And they say, don't remember, don't forget, I'm over you. And if you ever have to flex your authority in the relationship, then you've communicated to the person that you're out of capacity. I'm going to say that again. If I have to communicate when we're in conflict, uh, this happens in marriages, this happens in relationship, happens all the time with discipleship. If I have to pull the authority card to communicate to you because you're not doing something that's expected, then I've inadvertently just communicated my lack of capacity to love you well. I've shown you this is all that I have and I have nothing else. So I'm playing this card of authority. And so when people have been church hurt, which is a huge thing going around the world today, it's not that the people that have hurt them are their enemies. It's actually that the person has communicated, I'm out of capacity and I'm drowning and I don't know what else to say in this moment to fix it. So I'm actually communicating, I'm out of capacity. I'm your authority figure, submit. Just yeah. because I think what you're saying is is very, very powerful um, and profound. So would that look like somebody basically saying, um, well, I'm I'm the one discipling you and you agreed to this. So this, is that what you're talking about? Kind of like, or maybe it's even a more formal relationship than that. It might be, well, I'm yeah, the, I would I'm say the it's senior both. pastor or I'm the leader in this situation or whatever. Right. So. Is that kind of what you're talking about there? Yeah, yeah, it's, like, it's a tell of a lack of skill set. Let's say that they're emotional skills. Uh, and I'll use a marriage because it's probably the most common. Uh, we, you know, we've done marriage counseling for years. That's one of the things that we still do for people that, that need it uh, in relationship. Obviously, we don't just do that with strangers because we don't really have a place to speak in. But uh, more times than not, when a husband is out of capacity, he'll say things like, and this is this is a cue that you can look for. I'm your husband. You're supposed to submit to me. Yeah. When I use the law, the rule of relationship to beat over your head, I've communicated. I don't know how, how else to fix the problem. 
it's not that I'm trying to be um, this hard leader or this hard, you know, firm handed husband. It's that now I feel powerless. And when I feel powerless, I reach for a weapon. So I, I use something to reestablish my authority. So this happens in church. This happens in discipleship. And, and so it's important that we do that. Now, the language that I would use to instead of getting away from the hierarchy system, I like the idea when when we hear follow me as I follow Christ. So I like the picture of a road. So there's a path that's been paved by Christ that he paid for. That was his idea was not my own idea. And I start out on the road while well, I'm looking for others who have been on the road before me to tell me where to turn when I see this road sign. So that I can trust their direction because it's not coming from a place of being above me because Christ died to make me him. Hmm. Like he died and I, I died with him and he rose and I rose with him. And now I'm a mobile temple of God. His spirit lives in my body. And so lording over people and, and flexing that place of authority can be unhelpful because it actually disempowered what Christ died to put in you, which is his spirit. Now, I don't mean that that doesn't mean that we don't correct. Obviously, correction is love. But through the lens of love, there's a space to say, hey, I went down this highway and there's a wreck here. And you may want to turn on this road and just circumnavigate that. I didn't. And I got stuck in traffic for a few emotional years. And so I can help you because I've been there before you. And so in doing that, it, it makes it freeing to disciple people because now when I bring correction, I'm actually saving them uh, uh, time on the road. I, I'm not, I can't speed up their journey, but I can slow it down with a lack of skills. And so instead I'm trying to get them to be able to bypass what took me years. One of my favorite things when I disciple people is to see them bypass me, uh, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, emotional skill sets to see that I can pull them up to my current experience as a human being on earth with the Lord and to see them somehow come to a place where I'm asking them for advice. I'm asking them to pour into me. It's seemingly somehow my ability to love them has slingshotted them into their destiny with the Lord. And now I can trust what I've put in them because now I'm looking for my investment in them spiritually is now feeding me in the same way that I might take care of my son now, but when I'm old and gray, I want him to take care of me. That's a mindset that is, it's so important and it's such a healthy mindset to have because I, I think that there's a lot of insecurity around that when it comes to people that we're leading, people that we're raising up. I think that there's a tendency in a lot of people and I think it does come out of that place of, it comes out of a place of insecurity, I think, where we only want people to get to a certain level because maybe there's this pride thing where it's like, I always want this person to, uh, to depend on me to an extent, or I want this person to come to me. And that's not, that's not true discipleship. I mean, even when we look at Jesus, I never really thought about it in this context before, but when we look at Jesus say to his disciples, you're going to do the things that I've done and even greater things than these you will do. That's right. Jesus was raising up uh, leaders that were going to take the baton from him and carry it after he was gone that were actually going to, um, do things through the Holy Spirit that were, in, in his own words, greater things than the things that I've done, you're going to do. Of course, there was no insecurity there. It was empowering them. And right. So I think such an important aspect and what you're, what you're articulating, man, is just beautiful. It's such an important aspect of raising up uh, disciples, discipling people is this, this heart desire. We've got to have this heart desire to yeah. want to empower people. 
to empower them. If even if that means, I mean, hopefully it means that they go beyond us and do things that are beyond anything that we've ever done before. And that's not an indictment on your leadership or your ability to disciple. That's actually, I think, the greatest. Um, what's the word? Like the, I uh, can't can't think of the word. I'm, uh, but but I I think that's a. What that shows is that you've been a you've done a great job as a discipler, you know, to to get somebody to that point where you've empowered them enough. You know, you've created those, as you were talking earlier, those safe spaces for them to yeah. experiment, those safe, ex, those safe places for them to take risk and then celebrate it. I love that you said this before, man, celebrated with them the courage, even if what they did didn't go off 100 percent. But celebrating the courage to take that step of faith, celebrating the courage to take that risk, whatever it was to step out, but celebrating with them the courage to do that. That's that's such an empowering thing. And I, I just think what you're saying there is so beautiful because it's a really important element to raising up leaders, raising up disciples is um, that we're empowering them not to get to a certain point where, you know, we're not trying to create ceilings for people. We're trying to create a springboard for them to go further than we've ever gone before. And in that way, as you said, even your legacy lives on even after, yep. after you're gone. Well, and the greatest thing that you can do, like the culmination of discipleship is wrapped up with Jesus saying these words, as the father sent me, I send you. That is the culmination of discipleship. It doesn't mean that relationship ends. It means proximity and the scope of relationship shifts. You know, um, Jesus said, I no longer call you servants, but friends. And so there's this place of like, when we pour into people to a place where we know that they're actually ready, like, I, I love walking with people as they begin to disciple. Because they're like, oh my gosh, I didn't, I didn't realize it's so much like parenting. Like, I didn't realize when I was giving you this trouble, how much you had to put up with in order to walk me through this. And, and now I'm having this done and I'm like, and you saw me do it, which means you're capable of doing the same thing. Um, and so, yeah, it's really important just to make sure that, that we are living for something. Jason Upton, um, he, he did a song and then by the time he put it on an album, he kind of turned it into a poem as opposed to a song. But I remember when he first wrote it, we were, we were at a place where he was singing it. And the lyrics are, we're living for something that'll be here when we're old. We're headed someplace a little further down the road. And if you start looking at your ministry as something that will outlive you and it doesn't start and end with you, then you're automatically thinking in the lens of legacy uh, in the same way that you would about your own family. I'm, I'm certain that most people watching this couldn't imagine uh, a world that doesn't have their family lineage in it. Meaning. Uh, imagining a world where someone doesn't succeed you. Um, and, and in that way, when you start thinking about ministry, I think one of the most unhelpful things that I've at least observed in the last three years is transition for pastors. Mm, they yes. ran, you know, this, yep. this prophetic spiritual ministry journey for 20, 30, 40 years and they take the last three years to raise up their replacement. And then things don't go well. And, and it's not always the case. Sometimes it's stellar because maybe God sent the perfect person along. Uh, but more times than not, I think when you're looking to transition, it would probably be more helpful. You know, I haven't been in ministry 40 years, so I'm only speculating. 
uh, and I know what I don't know, and I don't know exactly how to do this because I haven't been there yet, but I would like to think, at least in my convictions today, that, you know, it, it might need to happen before two years before transitioning into something different. Um, you know, my conviction is once I gave my life to Jesus, I don't take it back. And so there's ministry that I'll, I might get paid for and there's ministry that I won't get paid for, but I'm still a son. And that means when I make my transition at whatever level, I may not be making money for it, but I'm still me and I'm still connected to the Lord and I'm still going to minister. So when, when I look for people, when the line company started, the first thing God told me once he gave me these dreams was, I, I want you to start immediately looking for replacements because this will outlive you. And so I treat a lot of the relationships. I don't put it, I don't put the carrot in front of their, their face and say, you know, Hey, I'm looking for replacements. Cause it sets up this expectation of it could happen at any minute. Why? Because over the last couple hundred years, when we communicate transition, people start thinking now. So instead, I'm looking for people that I can do relationship with for life that I know will be a life relationship. So when transition comes, it, it will have been a relationship that I've poured into for a long amount of time. So when I hand off, it's not it's not weird. It's not uncomfortable. It's actually celebrated because there's been miles put on that relationship. Man, that's so good. And and uh, man, we're we're coming up to the end here. But um, you know, one of one of my favorite verses is um, Psalm sixty eight verse six says that God takes the lonely and He puts them in families. Yeah, and it, it's such a beautiful picture of the heart of our heavenly Father, even from the beginning. Man, like with the whole, um, I mean, with the nation of Israel coming to be. Of course, it started with a family. You know, it started yeah. with a family that God highlighted. Um, you know, Noah, it was like Noah and his sons and his family that, you know, God uh, called to to build the ark. And then, I mean, they tried to get other people to join them, but th that didn't go so well. But it was like <laughs> it's always been on God's heart for family. Yeah. You know, from the very beginning, it's not good that man should be alone. And, and it's just this this thing that's so engraved into the heart of God uh, for us to be. Uh, in family, to walk together in family. And that's what the family of God is. Um, and uh, one, one of the things, man, that I would just love for you to um, just speak into for, for just a moment before we wrap this up is, uh, I don't think we've mentioned it, or maybe it's it's been mentioned, but I don't think we, you know, talked about it in detail or anything. But one of the, I, I think, unique aspects of what you do uh, with the ministry that God has called you two is that um, you do ministry in the context of family. So you and your wife and your son, who's 12 years old, I have a 12 year old as well. Um, and uh, but so it's like you guys in in relationship, in family together, walking together and doing ministry out of that context of family, which I think is a really beautiful thing. But the thing that I'd like to um, just ask you to speak into for just a moment, because I think that it's that it's so closely connected to what we've been talking about here with discipleship is um, with your son. So your, your son, your son is 12 years old. And obviously you've been walking with him, you and your wife walking with him, raising him up, building him up as a as a person, as a young man, uh, even even in the context of ministry um, and, of course, in the context of life and everything else. I'm just curious if there's like maybe one or two things that you could share of ways that that you've um, or that maybe that I should say it like this ways that the Holy Spirit has led you and your wife to raise up your son. I don't know if you would c call that discipleship or not. 
um, in terms of walking with, cause he's your son, he's part of your family. Um, sure. I think that, I mean, I, I've said this before that I think that, you know, raising kids is kind of like the highest form of discipleship that there is because we live together, we're walking together. And I think that we're allowed to look at it that way. I, I don't know if you would use that language or not, but, um, but yeah, just curious, like how are, what's maybe one or two things that the Lord has led you to do with a 12 year old <laughs> yeah. who's like, who loves the Lord, who has a passion for God, who's prophesying, who's, you know, walking in ministry from such a young age. Um, because I, I just think that, that, that would be, you know, so helpful both to parents listening and also just to anybody who is, you know, out there with a desire to disciple people. How have you and your wife kind of walked with your son, um, to, uh, just kind of position him, um, as you said, for, I don't know if you use the terminology, setting him up for success. Okay. So step one was before my son was born for people that this doesn't apply to just start where you start. Um, but before I was born, I'm sorry, before I was born, uh, before my son was born, I had a story about before I was born, but I'm not going to go there for today. Uh, before my son was born, I spent time discipling my wife. Uh, I needed to make sure that she knew the inner groanings of my soul for God. And I needed her to know my character at a core level, which meant no secrets, none, no hidden thoughts. And I learned how to communicate a great deal by making mistakes in discipling my wife. I had been in ministry before I met my wife, but it was very important that I went into this, this marriage and this relationship knowing that I had the full confidence of my wife. So that when I decided, I feel like the Lord is saying this, she needed to have mileage and see that I, I heard the Lord consistently. She needed to see me worshiping the Lord and reading scripture with her and without her. So when my son was born, it was a natural progression for us to practice what she had already had experienced with my son. So by the time he was three, we started having him... Um, ask God about little details that would seemingly matter to no one. And I know that that doesn't sound really wise or really deep, but I think that we make a major mistake when we wait to hear God on monumental life things. And here's an example. I think this will probably speak uh, a multitude. Lord, should I or shouldn't I marry this person? Lord, should I or shouldn't I buy this house? Should I or shouldn't I sell my house and move or take a job? We wait until these massive things happen, but we don't know what God's opinion is on the shirt that we have on our back. What's God's opinion on what I should eat today? What's God's opinion on what hat I should put on today? Why does it matter? Because I don't want to have to feel foreign in my ability to connect to the Lord when I'm at a life monumental moment. So at three years old, my son went into ministry school with his mom and his dad. We started having him ask God about everything, everything. If we acknowledge him in all of our ways, he'll direct our path. That's not a metaphor. That's a fact. And so when we start acknowledging him in all of our ways, we get a ton of direction. And then we walked it out practically. It wasn't just 
the little details, I wanted to know that my son could practice his ability to connect to the Lord in public with accuracy. And I had to have a way to be able to have him practice his hearing with reproducible results. Let's call it the science of hearing God, which is to be able to reproduce something with the same result. And so I would start to say, really basic things. This is to a child. Now we do this with adults and they get activated in their hearing ability, which I think is so amazing that God allowed us to do this with our son. And now we teach adults to hear the Lord the way that he learned to hear the Lord. Mm -hmm. And, And why does this matter in discipleship? Because I don't want you leaning on my knowledge of God alone. I want to know that it's resonating with what you're hearing in your heart with the Lord as well. Again, I don't want to build codependency on me. The moment you lose free will and discipleship, you're no longer a disciple, you're a slave. And so I started pouring into my son by saying, hey, buddy, I'm asking the Lord. We, we treated it like a game. Why? Because in adult circles, we say exercises. Nobody gets excited about exercise, right? But we all get excited about playing a game together. So I would say to him, uh, buddy, I'm asking the Lord uh, for an answer, yes or no. And I want you to ask the Lord what I'm thinking. Now, Jonathan, that's only a 50-50 outcome. And so is, should I buy a house? Yes or no. Should I marry this person? Yes or no. Should I move? Yes or no. And so I taught my son on the rule of averages at a base level. The foundational level is hearing God over a simple yes or no. The majority of questions we ask God are yeses and nos. And then I took it a step further. Buddy, I want you to ask the Lord. Um, I'm thinking of a number, one through 10. Ask the Lord what number it is. Well, that's now a 10% chance. But then we went up to 50, and we went up to 100, and then we went up to 1,000. And when my son could ask the Lord for a number between 1 and 1,000, 10 out of 10 times that I'm thinking of, and he's hearing the Holy Spirit and practicing that gift, then you start going, okay, there's no way this could be possible this many times in a row. And that is the point. It's teaching him on the rule of averages, how to break down the question into yeses and nos. So then I would say to him practically, and I know this may be a little more than you asked for, but this is what we did. We would say, okay, if, if my number in this random example, and then I'll give you a third step and I'll, I'll stop. But I would say if the number was between one and a thousand, I would have him ask, God is the number above or below 500. And it's a yes or no again, that he had already learned how to ask. Is the number odd or even? Is the number in the 300 block? Is the number above or below 350? Oh, it's above. Like he would continue to ask these questions, but I would tell him now, stop asking these questions out loud and just give me the answer that you come to. And he would be accurate, consistently accurate. There are many people that know us that have seen this happen. But then I would say that the third step would be now, buddy, if this person, because he's a kid, He needs to use his imagination. And many of us are afraid to because we've only used our imagination for sinful things. But that means if we can use it for sin, we can use it for righteousness. And so it's redeeming that God imagination. And I would say, if this person were an animal, what would they be in God's kingdom and why? Now, here's an example. I might say to to you, Duke, I might say just as an example, a lion, because, you know, um, and I would say, okay, God, if Duke is a lion, what makes a lion special? Well, a lion runs in community 
and they're most dangerous when they're in family. So then I might say to you, you know, as this example, Duke, your value system is so high for family that you would rather do nothing than to do it without your family. Is that true? And if they say yes, okay, then I'm, I'm hearing clearly. And I would teach him how to do that. Then I would say, um, buddy, if this person were an automobile, what kind would they be and why? If they were a fruit, what kind would they be and why? And now he would not prophesy to them, God says you're an apple. <laughs> That's so unhelpful. Right. But I would say to him, what makes the apple special? Okay, it's easily accessed. It stands out at a distance. It, it Most people enjoy it. Like finding the redemptive qualities of whatever that thing is. Mm -hmm. And after a while, something transitioned. He got so comfortable hearing the Lord that he didn't need any of the games anymore. He had learned enough through repetition to sense the Spirit speaking to him that those were just steps to an end, which is intimacy with God, apart from the games. Wow. And so in the same way, when we taught him to do that, then the next step was, okay, now you, you know, he, he grew up at three years old praying for people and seeing them recover, drawing pictures of people with terminal diseases. And when he would show them the picture, they would be instantly healed of like stage four cancer. And so it was teaching him to, to use that redeemed imagination and then leading him into this place of learning that intimacy with God was the pinnacle of any encounter that he ever hoped to have. And so all along this way, he's learning scripture. He's learning to worship the Lord without the fear of what people might think. And he's seeing it modeled with his parents. And so... Those were some of the, the first steps that we did. He's now 12 years old and he ministers with us as an equal. But we tell him, you have the same access to Jesus that we have, but you don't have the same experiences we have. Mm -hmm. So we're going to continue to disciple you and work on your character with the Lord so that as you grow, you're better than both of us combined. Man, that's so beautiful. That was like a you, you just you just you just gave a seminar, man. I, I hope I hope that people listening. I mean, that was more than I that I bargained for. Uh, that was that was unreal. I, I hope that anybody listening to that that wants to grow in in their own um, ability to hear the voice of God and or to help other people learn how to hear God's voice. Because you know all this stuff that we're talking about, man, from the beginning with obedience, obeying quickly, responding to God, radical obedience, you know, these things that yeah. really help us to grow and to enjoy this re this uh, relational adventure that we're on with Jesus of going to the next level and increasing in 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 faith and all of this stuff, man, like how do how do we obey? I mean, it's it's so important that we that we know, the voice of God. And he's yeah. such a good father that he wants us to know his voice so much so that you can ask your son a question like, hey, if this person was a fruit, what kind of fruit would they be? And like, that's something that God will actually go through that process of speaking with you about because the Holy Spirit is intent on this in each of us that we would know yeah. his voice, that we would learn how to uh, respond to him, that we would grow in these areas. And so uh, man, I think that that's such a beautiful thing. Taking it and making it into, you know, a game, something that's not this, you know, I, I've been in, I've been in atmospheres, uh, and I don't think it's bad in any means, but I've, I've been in atmospheres of like learning to hear the voice of God and going, you know, having training sessions and wanting to get activated and stuff like that. And I've seen it done in ways that can be very, very intimidating. 
for somebody yeah. who's just starting out. And I know for me, like that would make me, that would make me fearful. That would make me anxious. And in that environment, I, I don't know, for, for me, I would, once I'm anxious, I have a harder time hearing, hearing from God because I'm focused on trying not to feel anxious. <laughs> and right. so I, I think, you know, creating those atmospheres, again, I think it goes back to what you said earlier about creating those safe spaces and setting, setting people up, whether it's your own kids or others that you're walking with, that you're teaching, that you're training, right. that you're imparting to, that you're mentoring, that you're fathering, mothering, like, um, yeah. le leading them to that place where I love what you said at the end there, that like this, we have the same Jesus. We have the same access to Jesus. We have the same access to the Holy Spirit. And uh, it, it's it's a beautiful thing, man. I appreciate you so much for for sharing. That was just a wealth of knowledge and information that I that I pray. I know I'm taking it. Um, I'm taking that. <laughs> I pray that uh, others listening would, would take that and and uh, just apply that to to their own lives because this is really really powerful what you just did. Thank you for having me, man. I would I would leave you with just this parting thought uh, regarding immediate obedience. Um, the disciples got three years with Jesus, but his mother had 30 years before the world knew who he was. Hmm. And she came with this understanding that started when the angel appears and says that she's going to have Jesus. She says, according to your word, let it be which is funny because when we see the water turning into wine at Cana, she uses the same thought process. She sums up all of your relationship from now until the day you go to be with him in this simple statement. She tells the men, do whatever he says to do. According to his word, be it unto you. She starts, according to your word, be it unto me. And she tells the men at Cana, do whatever he says to do. So the reason for our rapid obedience has a lot to do with the evidence of our trust and faith in God. Hmm. That's all I got for today. Yeah. Man, well, thank you so much. It's been a, just a true privilege and honor to chat with you today. And uh, I, I hope that we can do it again uh, soon. And I'd love to hear yeah. more Jesus stories and... Yeah, man, it's so there's a lot. So <laughs> it's radical. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, so I know I'm going to bring this back up on the screen just for anybody um, that's checking this out that may have never um, been here before. But we've got the lioncompany.org and yep. you've got um, all kinds of media and several uh, mm -hmm. teaching videos and stuff like that. Things that you do with your wife, conversations that you've had. And um, just really, really um, beautiful and, and uh, impactful stuff. Very insightful and just, I, I just, I, I love your approach, man. I love the, the two of you together and just how laid back y'all are. Just dropping yeah. just, just bombs of, of wisdom yeah. and revelation, but in a very, very laid back way. And uh, very, it, just accessible and inviting. And I think that that is... Uh, it, it just makes it even more uh, powerful and more impactful because I think that um, I, I don't know. I, I just think that a lot of people can can rel not relates, not the right word. But um, anyway, it's just just accessible where where it's it's approachable for people to uh, 
to come and to listen and have an open heart and open mm-hmm. open mind to what the Spirit of God would say to them through the words that you guys are are imparting there. So very, very much appreciate that. So it's thelioncompany.org, thelioncompany.org. Is there anywhere else, Jonathan? I didn't ask you this before we started. Is there anything else, anything else or anywhere else that you would point people to go or is that? Uh, really you know, hard? honestly, if they, if they go to the website, my favorite feature to the website is there's a prayer request. We actually have a prayer team that will pray for whatever you need. And we see testimonies of this uh, pretty regularly. It's just that we don't, we don't typically share a lot of that without uh, permission of the people. We keep it totally anonymous. And so if you have prayer requests or things that you want us to pray for as a family or with our team, uh, that we do family with, uh, please go and submit a prayer request there. Uh, obviously, when you go to the website, uh, you'll have like the media page that has all of our videos on there, but we're on YouTube and Instagram and Facebook and um, TikTok. I don't know, all the, all the stuff. We're, we're pretty much yeah. everywhere and we do our best to not take ourselves too serious. We laugh more than we don't. And I think that's a part of keeping the joy of ministry instead of just becoming Jesus robots. So hope you guys enjoy some of the stuff that you see. Love it. Well, uh, thank you, everybody, for taking the time to be here and check out this episode, this conversation with uh, Jonathan Gibson. Really, really appreciate you guys. Uh, I just really pray that the contents of this episode blessed you, uh, maybe encouraged you, challenged you. I know it's like just all kinds of challenges for me. I'm going to go back and listen to this again, uh, Jonathan, and take take notes. I, wrote, I was writing notes down as I could as we were listening, but... Um, there's so much just value here and I appreciate it so much. So I pray that uh, your life was impacted in some way. Uh, if it was, I would absolutely love to hear from you. Uh, feel free to reach out on social media, direct message, or just responding to one of the videos on one of the social media platforms or something like that. And uh, yeah, well, everybody, hope you all have a Merry Christmas. Uh, Jonathan, just bless you, bless your family and uh, appreciate you. Again. Same to you too, bro. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Bye everybody.